Listener Production. I think everyone feels that the penalties are too high for putting a foot wrong in talking about things at the moment. Like, we have to be able to misspeak and make accidents. And the only way we get towards the truth is by wrestling with things in a messy way and sometimes making mistakes. If every time you make a mistake, you're hounded from the public square, that's no way to run a democracy. My big question for you today, my lovely listeners, is fear of saying the wrong thing stopping us from sharing our opinions? Now, why this is my big question is that I've recently found myself in a bit of a pickle on social media, thinking, do I share something? Do I say something? Do I stay quiet? What do I do? And it made me wonder, I'm sure there's been times when you found yourself in that position as well, either saying something, not expecting that there'd be a pile on, or just watching something happen when someone has said something, not intending to hurt anyone, but then there are all these consequences that happen around you. And I think more and more, we want to be having these difficult conversations rather than staying safe and quiet. But sometimes, because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, you don't quite know where to start. So that is why this is my big question. And I've got the perfect person to help me answer it. Now, it's Josh Zepps. Now, Josh is a journalist, humorist, and broadcaster. And he is someone who is never afraid to have uncomfortable conversations. In fact, he has a fabulous podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations. He's also recently launched a YouTube show by the same name, and he's about to embark on a tour where he's going to be having these uncomfortable conversations with some pretty inspiring people. Now, Josh, you may know, recently left the ABC, saying he was too spicy for the national broadcaster. And if you're in Sydney like me, you might have listened to Josh. Now, I was a big fan of Josh. I'd be listening to him when I'd be on my way to school pickup in the afternoons, and he would always make me think. So I'm really keen to know what your thoughts are on this conversation and this big question that you're about to listen to. Is fear of saying the wrong thing stopping us from sharing our opinions? Josh, you are the perfect person (laughs) to discuss this very idea because you are brave. You are unlike many broadcasters and you go where a lot of us fear to tread. Why do you do that? I don't feel I have a choice. I feel I'm drawn to that. I mean, what I'm always draws the, you to it? Well, I, I, I was always the kid who, when I was told not to touch something, I would go and touch it. Or when I was told that you do things this way, I would say, why? I want to get to the bottom of what is true. And I want to live in a society that is sufficiently rambunctious and lively and spirited that we're all capable. We're all grown-ups. You know, I believe in treating other people like they're grown-ups. I respect everybody, so I'm not going to pander to, to a point that's stupid. I'm not going to play a language game just because we've all decided that this is the way that you're supposed to talk about a particular issue. And there are so many things at the moment, whether it's gender relations or Israel and Gaza or transgender athletes or whatever it is, where there's a particular type of way of talking about this, or race or Indigenous affairs, there's a way of talking about things that we've all agreed to talk about in a certain way 
You know that if you make a certain point where you're trying to delicately tread on eggshells without triggering too many tripwires, to mix my metaphors, you're likely to get piled on in the comments section of a Facebook post or you're likely to be taken the wrong way if you say it at a party or a barbecue. So you just shut up instead. And I don't think that's conducive to a healthy society. I don't think that's how you create a democracy. And you're spot on. But the thing is, the consequence sometimes of voicing an unpopular decision can be to be cancelled or to be piled on and also to be misinterpreted. Yes, that's right. I mean, the forums in which we're talking at the moment, namely social media, are perfectly conducive to not having rational conversations that are generous to to other people's points of view. I mean, I believe in having a maximally generous attitude towards my opponent's ideas. And if they have to say it in 140 characters, it's very difficult to understand exactly what they're getting at. And it can become a, a game of one-upmanship where each both everyone's trying to score points. That's why I'll sometimes do a podcast on uncomfortable conversations where I'm just talking for an hour and a half by myself about something sensitive. I've done one about gun laws in the United States. I've done one about anti-Semitism and Gaza, where I just have to hear myself try to flesh through things in a way that is going to be recognizable to both sides. Like a lot of the talking that we're doing to each other at the moment is talking that's comprehensible to people who are inside our echo chamber, but that sounds biased or blinkered or at worst deranged to people who don't consume the same media that we do and don't think the same way that we do. I regard my job as as just teasing open by 10% our capacity to understand the other side. So how, in terms of, you know, people listening who have views, I mean, you mentioned there Israel and Gaza, and I listened recently to your editorial on that, and it opened my eyes to ways of thinking that I hadn't considered. Oh, great. Well, yes, it That's really the did. compliment I can Yeah, receive. but it really did. But how I see myself is, I mean, I'm a champagne socialist. Yeah. I, I am. <laughs> but I'm She's a, admitted it, folks. I am, right but, here. but I'm a right lefty. Now. I always, I want to stand up for people. And I have my entire life since I was a little girl and I'd get teased about it and I keep standing up, standing up. But then what I find now as I get older, I think I'm doing the right thing. And then I'll get hate for that. And I suppose... More recently, if we can talk about Israel and Gaza, where I live in a very Jewish part of Sydney and I've got a lot of Jewish friends. And so when the terrible events of October happened, I retweeted a tweet about let's think about our Jewish friends during this time and reach out. So I did that. But then as things un- yes, but then as things unfolded, and of course all of us see these terrible images and pictures from Gaza. I was thinking, oh, I'm conflicted. So then I retweeted something about a ceasefire and humanity and things. And then a number of people that I know then reached out to me saying, we need to have a coffee. We need to talk about your views on this. And then they would send me other imagery and things. And I felt sort of under siege. But then I sat down and I spoke with one of my best friends who is Jewish. And she was also upset by what I'd posted. So I really listened to her. And also I listened to what you had said. I mean, you'd speak openly about, you know, you're Jewish, your father fled Germany. It gave me more of an idea of the nuance to what is going on. But at the same time, I then have Muslim friends who've contacted me and said, why are you being silent on what's happening in Gaza? You Mm. have a social media platform. 
And I have retreated yeah. from sending tweets and those sorts of things. But I don't know if that's the right thing. Well, I mean, here's a newsflash. Like, not everyone has to have an opinion about everything. You're not obliged to. Of course you're not. But I feel like I have a platform and I'm sure people listening to are feeling conflicted about they're upset by what is happening. They can't understand what human beings can possibly do to one another. How can they make sense of it? So what do we do? Well, my main goal is to turn the heat down on things by 10% at the same time as turning understanding up by 10%, right? So sometimes that will mean talking and sometimes that will mean shutting up. I've been basically shutting up over the entire course of the Israel-Gaza thing with the exception of saying my piece in one long editorial that a lot of people found really useful because I tried to tease out my conflictedness. I mean, I'm broadly of the left. I want to support the underdog. I think that Israel has been led horribly for decades by right-wing, um, I don't want to swear on this podcast, but <laughs> people who I don't hold in high esteem. I think Netanyahu is a, is a corrupt hack and the tragedy that Palestinians find themselves is, is just that, a complete tragedy. And at the same time, if you're out there marching around with banners that say, by any means necessary, from the river to the sea, be careful that you know exactly what you're saying. And that was an eye-opener for me. Perhaps you could share that with our listeners, that what that slogan, in fact, implies. Well, yeah. I mean, it, look, so the problem is that, that we, inside everybody's echo chamber, what we're saying sounds reasonable. We're all the heroes of our own story. We all think that we're doing the right thing. And we want to do the right and thing. And we want to do the right thing. And, and I, too, have been contacted by lots of my friends in the Instagram space saying, you see dead babies being pulled from the rubble in Gaza. How can you not speak out against that? Well, newsflash, it's not a great moral insight that killing babies is wrong. Like, I'm already on... I think we're all on that page. Like, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. You don't need to go out and march and you don't need to make an Instagram video or a TikTok about how bad it is to bomb babies. We get that. The challenge is a person who says from the river to the sea or a person who wears a Palestinian flag as some... I saw Qantas flight attendants were just reprimanded for doing because they didn't understand what that might mean to some Jewish passengers. You know, we had the controversy about some performers wearing Palestinian flags at the curtain call of a play. They think all they're doing is saying, why wouldn't you want to be nice to a dispossessed people? You know, they deserve uh, a state just like everybody else deserves a state. Fine. That's what those symbols and those slogans mean to them. To other people, the idea that there should be a single Palestinian Arab state all the way from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, implies that there's nowhere for Jews to have anywhere safe to live. We're talking about a tiny minority of people, 16 million people globally, who have been hounded and persecuted and pillaged throughout all of history, who were finally given a place to live. And we can quibble about how unjust it was what they did to the other people who were living there. It's a pretty raw deal if your ancestors were living there. But it's complicated. I mean, Jews were driven out of all of the surrounding Arab countries. The majority of Jews in the Middle East were not parachuted in from Europe after World War II. They come from surrounding Arab countries, which are incredibly hostile to Jews in a way that Israel is not hostile to Palestinians and Arabs who live in Israel. Again, I'm not an apologist for settlements, for the occupation of Palestinian land. 
I'm asking that we all understand what the things that we're saying mean to the people who aren't already on our page. And if you're saying from the river to the sea to someone who thinks that there should be a state for Jews in some version, in some capacity in the Middle East, that can sound like you want to wipe out the Jews. Now, you may not mean it that way, but have the leap of empathic imagination to understand that in a hot environment where tempers are raw and people are feeling besieged on both sides, it may actually be the right thing to shut up. Sometimes it is. Yes, and you've said that very well, I think, but at the same time, for someone like myself who feels I need to sort of stand up, I need Mm. to sort of say, hey, this is what I believe in or this is wrong, it can be hard to be quiet. When you see injustice, but yeah. but I suppose the point you're making is that things are always nuanced. I mean, through there what lens complexity. are we looking at the injustice? So, I mean, we also have to understand our our what, what a psychologist would call our priors, right? Meaning the things that we're bringing to the table that we're we're using as assumptions that we may not even be aware of. We have so a, our unconscious our bias. unconscious bias, right? I think we have a prior in Australia, and it's a worthy one. That in general, when you see a conflict, if there are poor brown skinned people, then they're probably in the right. And if there are wealthy, whiter-skinned people wearing suits and speaking good English, they're probably the colonial occupiers and they're probably morally questionable. We have inherited this from our own terrible history of colonialism. I think we've become more aware of it in recent decades because of the First Nations question in Australia. And we're hypersensitive. We have this algorithm running in our heads, this heuristic that says rich clean-looking, whitish person in suit, bad. <laughs> a poor, brown-skinned person, probably better. Let's just be aware of that when we're looking at conflicts. It's not always true. Sometimes the poor, brown-skinned person, you know, smashes across a border and starts violently raping innocent people. That's not a good thing to do. So let's have a ledger on which we're understanding that there is moral culpability on both sides. That doesn't mean that You can't call for a ceasefire. It doesn't mean that you can't say that Israel has handled this terribly. It doesn't mean that you can't say that Israel should never have been building settlements the way that it does. But it means let's have these conversations in ways that have empathy and nuance instead of flag-waving, marching, pontificating in ways that I think only serve to actually alienate us and divide us rather than bring us together. So how do we do that, though? How do we get over that fear... I have that, that fear of saying the wrong thing to then have better, more meaningful conversations that make us feel that we can enact change or that well, we say, are moving forward. I mean, maybe it's better to take an example of things where there are things that, like, so there are some issues that I think are so complicated that it's worth shutting up about. And I would probably put Israel and Gaza in that camp. Like, unless you have skin in the game... I would tactfully suggest that people shut up. Uh, Unless you're a Palestinian, unless you're actually a Palestinian or you're actually a Jew, probably not your place to be trying to foment violent unrest on that issue. But what some people then feel is, and I know it's very different, but they look at when terrible things have happened, that's saying that it's when good people do nothing and say nothing. You just have to be bloody sure that you're the good person, right? You just have to be bloody damn sure that you're that? on the right side. Well, let's take <laughs> we let's take a, take a simpler example where there are also still. I'd like to think I'm a good person. You are a good person, Jess. <laughs> We're both good people. But so then, why can't we say something? Well, so take an issue where I think it's clearer that there is a truth or a right 
position that you can't talk about. So it might be something like, you know, just to kick a the obvious hornet's nest that involves the greatest difficulty in talking about without getting hounded, which is transgender issues, right? Suppose you want to simply make the point that uh, there's something uniquely special about growing up as a girl in a sexist world and that intrinsic to the idea of womanhood is that you grew up as a girl and you then went through puberty as a girl. This implies that there are two biological sexes that broadly map onto gender. Now, you can hold that position at the same time as you also hold the position that there is this phenomenon of transgenderism, that we've seen it in almost all places over almost all time, that some people from a very, very early age insist that they were born into the wrong body and those people should be able to avail themselves of all the medical treatment that they want to in order to be able to transition and we should respect them and not discriminate against them. But there is still a huge penalty, even just to saying what I just said, because the orthodoxy amongst polite progressive circles at the moment is that trans women are women. But they are. Right? I mean, I'm... I'm trans women that. are women. They but are. what do you mean by, by trans women are women? That's a tautology. Of course trans women are women, if you call women is the category that includes trans women. Fine. Then let's agree with that. Is there anything special about the cisgender women who grew up as girls? I don't think... To me, I don't think so. I think... Is it transphobic to say that? To say what I've said? No, to or say what, what I said. Is it well, transphobic? Because I'm, I'm just saying what, well, for example, Jermaine Greer yes, would say, which right. is that as a feminist, it's a betrayal and of women. And probably J.K. Rowling would say too. Right. I would say, yes, a lot of people would say what you've said is transphobic. Right. And so this is where we start getting into problems, I think, because transphobia or some other accusation of bigotry becomes a, an all-purpose bludgeon with which you can stop conversation. You don't even have to engage with the question, right? You can just say, I, that's <coughs> you can say nonsense. You're trans- exactly. You can say, well, only a transphobe would say that or only a racist would question why we do welcomes to country, why a bunch of white middle managers on a Zoom call are doing a, an, an acknowledgement of country before they have their marketing meeting. You know, right? If someone says, well, hang on, is this actually the best way to achieve reconciliation? Well, only a racist would question why we're doing this. But... So Hang it's on, maybe it's just a catechism. Maybe we're doing a, a catechism. Maybe we're just maybe we're achieving nothing. Maybe there are ways in which white university-educated progressives pat each other on the back and feel good without actually enacting any real any economic sacrifice. Isn't it a start? This is kind of where I sort of struggle a bit, where my sense of always sort of standing up for people, and I think for so long we haven't stood up enough, and when it then swings the other way too far one way, that's then when there's the problem. Because I've found sometimes when things have swung back on me, I've been like, but I thought you were my people. Yes. <laughs> Why are you being so <laughs> awful? Well, it depends who me. you're standing up for, right? I mean, so you can stand up for the transgender person, and let's not even say that this is the transgender person. You can stand up for the activist who is very exercised by the transgender issue, um, which may be different from... I mean, I have a lot of trans friends who are as sceptical towards gender ideology as J.K. Rowling might be, uh, and they're not necessarily on board as much as my most activist socialist friends would be about pushing what you might call a transgender agenda. So you can be on the side of the transgender activist, or you could be on the side of the 15-year-old 
female athlete who is getting beaten all the time by people who but were wait born a minute. as How often as does boys? that happen? Well, we does it matter? Isn't it a matter of principle? No, no, no but, but it's a matter of facts. Like, there's not all of these transgender gold medal winning Olympians who are sort of at, at the top of all their sports. But why that does doesn't the number happen. matter? Why does the number matter? Well, Isn't it a matter of principle, but it's of not, morality? No, no, it's not the number. It's actually, is this true or not? Well, and it is true that if you're a weightlifter and you go through puberty as a boy, you will forever be a better weightlifter on average but, than but it's, a, a girl. But we're not seeing that happen. It's not as if well, we're we seeing... we would if the transgender, no, I, like, I, I ideologues dis- won. No, I disagree. But we actually are seeing. I mean, there are, in, no, in the States, there actually not. are a lot of examples of it. <laughs> there why, are not. I, again, I don't quite understand why the there number matters. Like, Well, the number matters in the sense of, is it... True or not? Is this a fact? It's but easy fact, for people to say, oh, my but it goodness. But it is a fact that there would be an unfair advantage for a person who went through puberty as a male in a swimming pool. This is why we have segregated sports. This is why we have we don't make but women do compete really against men. do you really believe that or are you just being contrarian? Well, that's part of my <laughs> shtick, isn't it? Being con- you never quite <laughs> you know, know the difference. You... I'm kicking a hornet's nest because I think it's useful for us to interrogate why we believe the things we believe. But it's only useful if it doesn't then reinforce prejudice. Right. So what I find for me, what I find uncomfortable, say with what you're saying, is if that then encourages people to just be more prejudicial and just awful in their views, I don't think that's a great thing I to be get it saying. Completely. I completely agree. My opinion would be the exact opposite, which is that the way that you will achieve an end to prejudice against transgender people is by being fair dinkum about gender and by not sounding like you're full of bullshit to people who aren't already on your team. So saying there are certain people who feel like they're in the wrong body, they should absolutely be able to present as the opposite sex, we should give them all the respect and not discriminate against them. But if you insist that my aunt has to agree that there's no such thing really as men and women and that there are no biological differences between the sexes, she's not going to come on board with being nice towards transgender people. You know what I mean? Like you have to sort of so have you've to got sound to meet reasonable. Somewhere in the you have to meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, you have to be well you have to hear the criticisms of your opponents and not just say I'm going to lie about this thing because I think that it, that the world is going to be a nicer place if everyone just believed this lie. If everyone just believed that there was no biological differences between the sexes, then the world would be a great place and the lions would sleep with the lambs and we'd, you know the rivers would flow with milk and honey and the postman would be hugging the St. Bernard dog. Yeah, but we don't live in that world where everyone's going to buy your fiction just in, in the interests of being nice to a minority. The, the way to honour minorities, the way to honour social justice is to have conversations that are both respectful but also fair dinkum and to be as bullshit-free as we can in the so way we talk about things. So perhaps that's the word then respectful conversations, that that is how we can get over that fear of saying the wrong thing, that as long as we are respectful with our differing opinions. Yes. And that is my almost bugbear or concern sometimes that when we do have these conversations, people aren't respectful Mm. and that they can say hateful things that are incredibly hurtful and can have long-lasting consequences yep. for the people that they're targeting. I mean, absolutely. And I would also just indict social media here. We've handed over to 22-year-old tech bros in Silicon Valley who ride skateboards to work the ability to 
shape through the algorithms that they design what information we're presented with and what is on your feed. I mean, when you open Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, you are not seeing an impartial presentation of everything that your friends are posting. I mean, this is algorithmically tweaked to elicit a reaction from you. And the things that elicit a reaction, you know, the measurement, the metrics here, are whether or not you comment or like or share or hover over uh, a video for longer. And it will present you with things that you're likely to engage with longer to increase the time that you spend on the app, on the site. And it's going to favour things that either pander to what you already believe or demonise things that you don't believe. So you're going to see shocking things uh, that are perpetrated by people who disagree with you. And you're going to see quite reasonable looking things from people who agree with you. So and we're those all echo in chambers. that bubble. Yes, we're all in those echo chambers. So like put the phone down as a start. I don't think we would have nearly as much heat on these toxic culture war issues if people were off social media and we were having conversations like the one that you and I are having now where we, could, where we had the time and space to tease out what we really believe and what we're really up to. Because I think everyone is basically on the same page, that we want to live in a society that is, yes, respectful, but also not a Stalinist thought crime chamber. You know, we'd, I, I think everyone feels that the penalties are too high for putting a foot wrong in talking about things at the moment. Like, we have to be able to misspeak and make accidents. And the only way we get towards the truth is by wrestling with things in a messy way and sometimes making mistakes. If every time you make a mistake, you're hounded from the public square, that's no way to run a democracy. But to me as well, getting back to consequences from speaking out, what I've found too is sometimes what will happen is with my girls on their social media, they will then get stuff directed at them about me. Mm. And do you know your mother supports da-da-da-da-da? And so that also has made me more, I suppose, fearful of Mm. voicing my opinion on things because I think, oh, Is that going to be the wrong thing, even though I'm well-intentioned? I mean, we have to cultivate a culture of not giving a stuff. That's hard, We have to. How do you find that, Well, it's a collective action problem, isn't it? I mean, if I'm the only person out there doing it, then I get stabbed with a thousand spears and everybody else gets to go home and have a nice lunch. Does it bother you? Are there times when... So how do you manage that then? With stoicism. What, stiff upper lip and just yeah, keep going? stiff upper lip and believe that I'm fighting the good fight, that I honestly believe we're not going to get through the 21st century as a civilization if we can't solve this conundrum. We're not going to be able to cohere like as a demos, as a people who share a country and share a philosophy and a way of life if we succumb to the forces, both algorithmic on social media at the moment, handed to by the mainstream media, you know, you can open a particular newspaper or you can turn on a particular channel and you pretty much know the point of view that you're going to get. You kind of know the slant that you're going to get. Increasingly, if you tell me which columnists you like or if you tell me what your opinion is about the corporate tax rate, I can conclude whether or not you believe in climate change. Now, those two things have nothing to do with each other but they're checkboxes that you tick on a particular tribal affiliation. And I do worry that with 
identity politics on the left sort of moving away from the traditional left-wing concern with economic justice and towards a, you know, finite pie fighting over a slice of the pie between warring identity factions. So you've got the, you know, you've got your gays, you've got your transes, you've got your people of colour, you've got your women, and we're all just identity groups at war with each other. That that on the left and the increasing hostility and racism and bigotry of the far right will conspire to rip us apart if we don't all just do a better job of being a little bit more fearless about what we say and a little bit more generous when other people say the wrong thing. And respectful, I think, when we have those conversations. So not either shouting people down and using sort of hate to then make people who feel like they don't have a voice. deal with the actual issue, I would say. Like, respect can sometimes be a code word for don't say anything at all or be anodyne or, you know, and that's not what I'm arguing for. Respect, to me, means grappling with the actual issue that they're raising rather than trying to get them fired or demonised or excluded or otherwise penalised for holding an opinion that you think is beyond the pale. I think it's important for us to interrogate why we believe what we believe I think it's important for us to take generously other people who are trying to interrogate why we believe what we believe. And the worst move that you can make is to excommunicate somebody, to push them out of the family, to want to not talk to them again, to want to get them banned or fired or something because they're on the wrong team. Because what that fails to recognize is that you two are on a team. You two are in an echo chamber. You two believe things that they regard as being ridiculous. And I'm not saying that there isn't good and there isn't bad ideas, but the way to understand them is to actually interrogate the ideas themselves, not to attack the person who holds the idea. And then that is how we can move forward. Is your frustration over not being able to interrogate those ideas why you wanted to leave the ABC and why you've left the ABC? Partly, yes. I mean, partly it's about echo chambers and about how much are we up to having... Yes, I would call it boisterous and uncomfortable and rambunctious and penetrating conversations about provocative issues. There's a lot of challenges that we face at the moment from artificial intelligence to climate chaos to whatever else. And we're going to have to all be rational and we're going to have to all believe in the same facts broadly. And it's just not good enough for us to keep trotting along in safe spaces where the assumption is that the people who we're speaking to broadly share our worldview. Like, we have to be able to reach out to people who don't share our worldview and sound reasonable to those people as well. And and I felt that that's just, with the growth of independent media and the growth of podcasting, I was like, I can do so much on my podcast and so much now on my YouTube channel, which I didn't have time to do, and so much in live events by bringing luminaries who I disagree with and agree with onto stages around Australia. But I was like, let's just try that. I mean, this is clearly the future of broadcasting anyway. It's not clear to me that that in five or ten years there'll be a big difference between watching television and watching something streaming on YouTube, if there is already anyway, for people under the age of 30, at at least. And clearly, I mean, we can consume podcasts as easily as we can consume radio. So what job is old school legacy media doing at this point? I mean, I am a huge fan of public broadcasting. I love the ABC. I want the ABC to be as successful as it can possibly be. Um, And to the extent that I'm constructive in steering it in that direction, great. And to the extent that that is not a welcome force Uh, you know, in the eyes of particular people at the ABC, that's a shame. And were you told 
you can't say particular things? No, it's never that blunt. No. When you're under a contract, they can give the okay or they can decline any other outside work that you might do. So that might be writing an opinion piece for a newspaper or something like that. And they run a tight ship. Uh, they're, they're risk-averse. They're cautious, understandably so. They cop a lot of needless nonsense from the right. You know, nobody likes being hauled up by, you know, pontificating populist right-wing senators in some Senate estimates and being grilled about why play school had a gay person on it or something. Like, there's a lot of nonsense about the ABC that it has to endure. So I get their timidity. But I don't think that there's a path for um, public broadcasting in Australia that doesn't involve growing a pair, uh, you know, to some extent. So it's not about... Uh, no, I was never... I didn't feel... I have no gripe with the ABC. I just have a gripe with the way that we're having conversations in this country more broadly. And was that also why you did tweet and you put on your Instagram support of Antoinette Latouf, who was filling in on ABC Radio, yeah. and she had tweeted some pro-Palestinian views, but she then lost her job at the ABC as a result. Yeah, she and I disagree completely about um, Palestine, but I, I regard her as being a person who is willing to sit down and have a conversation and not uh, sling mud. And there's too little of that in Australia at the moment. It's too easy to just sit inside our echo chambers and you know, talking in ways that are not going to ruffle any feathers. We have to ruffle more feathers. And I like people who ruffle feathers. So even if there are people like her who are on the opposite position of an extremely hot issue, for me, if they're ruffling feathers in good faith and I know that they'll listen to reason and then walk away from it, maybe still disagreeing with me, but having heard me out and having been heard by me, yes, let's all jump into this big mud pit. You know, this is it. That's fun. That's that's a lot more interesting than than never being challenged. You say, "Let's all jump into this mud pit." There's a part of me though that goes, "Oh," because <laughs> I can see you relish that. Mm. I'm someone though who I don't like conflict. I don't like I don't like upsetting people. I like to keep people happy. Yeah, I think. We get a bit confused about the mud pit. I, I, I don't want a mud pit where people are flinging handfuls of mud into each other's eyes willy nilly. I like want a, you know I want a mud pit with rules, Jess. I want a, I want mud wrestling where there's an umpire <laughs> where we can have a little bit of a, a wrestle and then have a timeout and have some beverages and then go back for a, go get back into the ring. So I yeah I I think th- there's a weird thing that's happening at the moment where. The hostility and intransigence and hatefulness is happening at the same time as we're becoming less interesting in the ways that we talk to each other. It's like there are these parallel tracks, right? On the one hand, you've got the conversations that we have becoming more banal, I would say, and more sort of soft and genteel and safe, yes. And then you've got these eruptions of hostility on social media and cancellations and... Uh, extreme heat. And I think the two things are related. Like, I think the way you turn down the heat on the personal attacks is by making everybody feel like there is an open and safe terrain in which they can articulate their disagreements. And where is that, though? On my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations with Absolutely on your podcast. (laughs) But in terms of more generally, I'm off Twitter now. I don't go onto Twitter anymore because I just thought, no, I don't even need to go there. Yeah. And, I mean, I do my Insta, which I love, and TikTok. But whenever things get to 
nasty, I just then back away from it for a while. But where else can we have these conversations? In real life. In real life. Like, there's no substitute for real life. There's no substitute for, you know, having a connection to your community. There's some psychological phenomenon that I I can't remember the name of that I'm sure a listener will know, which is, which posits that happiness is correlated to locating your focus of attention and concern on those spheres in your life that you, that are within your control. And the extent to which you focus on things that are outside your control is correlated to unhappiness. And we tend to be spending a lot of time focusing on big global issues, national politics, is Trump going to get re-elected? What's going to happen about China? You know, what's happening with the war in Ukraine? It's all making us miserable. These are things that generally are not actually affecting our lives that, yes, absolutely do constructive activism if you think so, if you think you, you want to. But hopping onto Instagram and posting a video wagging your finger at everybody for not writing angry letters to Penny Wong to do something about Gaza is actually not doing anything. That's slacktivism, as they call it. That's like sitting in your in your living room, posting a video, making other people feel bad for their own inadequacies. Focus on the spheres of your life that are within your control, your community, your school, your local politics, your neighbours, your family. You know, it's very glamorous and fulfilling to go out and try to change the world. But, like, pull your neck in, revolutionaries. You know, Instagram warriors, go home, make a peanut butter sandwich for the kids, talk to your neighbour, and have the conversations that you feel nervous about having online with real human beings, and they'll probably go fine. Just don't have them on Instagram. Yes! I'm going to do that. Do it. You make me look at things differently and often in unexpected ways. And I think sometimes we have these ideas that if you're this particular way, that will be your viewpoint. But that isn't always the way. And I think to be surprising Mm. is exciting. Yes. And that's what you are with your sort of views. Just finally, though, where would you say you are happiest when you have these conversations? Talking to really interesting, smart people who I disagree with a bit and having the two of us wrestle towards a common understanding of something, I mean, that's my happy place. And that, you know, that can be Stan Grant or, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head about people who I've interviewed, Russell Brand, people who I have very significant differences with. But the the repartee, the thrust and parry, the kind of sense of, yes, the mud, the mud pit. And I also have some very close friends who... Uh, you know, we could, we might take a weekend away and go somewhere and just sit on a porch or find a little pub and uh, and talk and allow the conversation to go wherever it will go. Those are my happiest moments, I think. Well, thank you for sharing some of that with us, thank Josh. You, it Jess. has been a joy, and I'm going to miss you in the afternoons, I'm ABC sorry. Radio in Sydney. Well, listen, why don't I send you a text message at 12:30 every day, and instead of turning on the radio, you can just listen to my podcast, and you can pretend that it's a radio show. I will do that. <laughs> uh, well, I've already subscribed to Great. your YouTube channel. Fabulous. Thanks, <laughs> Jess. Thank you. So what a conversation, hey? My mind is still spinning. Josh has that tendency to do that 
to you and for you. And I really encourage you to subscribe to his podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. As well, he has a YouTube show, which you can subscribe to. I'm a new subscriber on that. And as well, he's going to be taking his Uncomfortable Conversations on tour. And that will be quite a show. We've got all of the links for all of that in our show notes. So head there. And for more big conversations like this, if you haven't already subscribed and followed me, the Jessero Big Talk Show podcast, go on, get on board. And also, if there's someone in your life who you think you'd like to have these sorts of conversations with but aren't sure where to start, why not get them on board? Get them to subscribe to the show because we love our podcast community and we really want to grow it more and more this year. And if you enjoyed this chat with Josh, I reckon you'll love my chat with his husband, Sean Zepps. When you're growing up and you can't see yourself, it's impossible to be yourself. So there wasn't a lot of hope. And I lived for such a long period of my life, feeling like there's just no way in hell I'm going to make it that far. I will not become an adult, you know? And I guess the beauty the great gift of that is that now when I get up each day and I like decide, you know, what are you going to do today? What are you going to write in your book? And what stories are you going to tell online? And what are you going to do on your podcast? And like, what, how are you going to make the world a better place for the next generation of queer kids? Well, I'm able to look back at that little kid and go, do it for him. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.